I wanted it more than anything else in life. I wanted to be a fireman. Oh, to put out fires and to wear those cool hats. It's something I wanted more than anything else for about a month. (laughs) Then I saw the commercials about the Marines. We want a few good men. I thought, well, they're looking for me. I wanted to be one of the, the, the uniforms that they wore were so great. Then I wanted to be a doctor. Then a musician. Then I wanted to be an American spy. Man from Uncle was where it was at. Then I wanted to be a photographer. Now those are the ambitions of a youngster. Later on I was able to meet some of the people who mastered those professions. I worked with some of the finest surgeons in Southern California. I met the chief photographer for NASA who filmed all the splashdowns in the early space work. Heard some great musicians and got to know them. Now what makes the difference between those who have excelled in those professions and the youngster who thought he wanted to do all of those things? Could it be talent? Well, no doubt. Could it be just a lucky break, perhaps? Success? Certainly that's part of it. But the thing that separates those who have a casual desire and those who do it is something called passion. And it was a passionate pursuit for many of those people who excelled at those things. I I had a casual fascination. They had an intense craving. Their craving drove them. My fascination dribbled and died out. Now those who have success in any of these endeavors don't do it automatically. They have times of failure. They have times where it doesn't work out. For instance, Ty Cobb was thrown out more times trying to steal bases than anyone else in baseball history. Babe Ruth was struck out more times than any man in baseball history. Enrico Caruso couldn't hit the high notes and his voice teacher told him to quit. He was a failure. But he kept going at it. And he went down in musical history as one of the greatest tenors ever. Thomas Edison's teacher called him a dunce. Can you imagine that? And he was called a failure because he tried to find the right material to make a filament for the incandescent bulb. And for hundreds of times he failed until he finally made it. Albert Einstein flunked a math course. Henry Ford was broke at age 40. Then there was one notable guy who failed in business in 1831, was defeated for the legislature in 1832. His sweetheart died in 1835. He had a nervous breakdown in 36. He was defeated as Speaker of the House in 38, defeated for Congress in 43, defeated for Congress again in 48, defeated for Senate in 1850, defeated for Vice President in 56, and for Senate in 58. His name is Abraham Lincoln. He went on to become President of the United States. Now when you hear names like that, you don't think of failures, you think of successes. But these were people who didn't go through unscathed, they got up again. And they had a passion that drove them on to do what they finally did. Now if only we could apply that same kind of determination and go for an attitude to our walks with God. Well, in chapter 2 of Proverbs, we have 
A picture of a person who has a hunger and a thirst for God, a passion, a passionate pursuit. And I've called this message a passionate pursuit after God. Uh, This section, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, paint a picture of a person who understands the fear of the Lord, has the intimate knowledge of God, and he's been driven to pursue God until he has reached his goal. Let's read these verses. My son... If you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth Come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. That section is divided up into two sections, requirements and rewards. What are the requirements? What are the prerequisites for passionately pursuing God? And what are the rewards of pursuing God? Notice the way it is written. There are if clauses followed by then clauses. In other words, it is not automatic. You just don't plug into a light socket and have instant growth and holiness. There's if, 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 then, then, then. If you receive my words and treasure my commands so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Verse 3, if... You cry out for discernment and lift up your voice. Verse 4, if you seek her as silver and search as hidden treasures. And then comes the then clauses. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And so forth. Now we've already talked about the fear of the Lord. Remember its meaning? It is a reverential awe or a respect for God that would cause us to humbly submit to Him in love. And we've talked about wisdom. We've talked about success in life, in following after godly pursuits. The question is, okay, the fear of the Lord is prominent, it's preeminent, and we need to live wisely and so forth. How do we get there? All of it is tied to the Word of God, the truth of God. That's really what it is here. We have a father educating his young son in receiving commands and precepts and ordinances. And then he says, this kind of wisdom is God's wisdom. It comes from God. God gives wisdom and knowledge. So this pursuit after God and all of the requirements have to do with our attitude toward the Word of God. And there's five steps that are outlined here in these verses. The first step, the first requirement is, you must receive God's truth. That's how it begins. If you receive my words. Receive means to take in or to take along with you or to receive unto yourself graciously. In other words, we have to be receptive, first of all, to the truth. The first thing we do then is expose ourselves to the truth. We listen to it. With an open mind and an open heart, we receive it. 
That's always the first step. Now, there's a lot of options to do that. You can come to church and hear it in a sermon. You can read Christian books. You can read the Bible on your own. Uh, You can get it through Christian radio, uh, even every now and then if you're lucky, through Christian television, though it's kind of slim and none. But it's out there every now and then, the Word of God. You can get it through the Internet, through tracts. There's so many options to receive God's truth. But that is always the first step. We expose ourselves to it and we're open to receive it. Okay, let's see what this is all about. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? And so it's a picture of a person. They haven't believed yet. They haven't known. They haven't known because they haven't heard. Nobody's preached to them. But eventually somebody does. And the first step is to be open or to receive God's truth. You may be here this morning as what some call a seeker. You haven't found is what that implies. But you're open. You're seeking. You've come with an open mind and you've come with an open heart. And that's good. That's a first step. But then there are various degrees of receptivity. Remember, Jesus had a story about that. He talked about a farmer who tossed his seed out in a field. And there were various responses because various types of soil received the seed differently. There was the good soil, well-nourished, where the seed could take root and bring forth fruit abundantly, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Then there was the soil that received the seed, but the soil was shallow because it had a rock shelf just underneath the topsoil. And though it sprung up, that is, the seed grew into a plant, it did it rapidly, but there was not much depth of earth, so it didn't last. It was temporarily received. Then there was the soil that received the seed and the plant grew up, but there was all sorts of other weeds that choked up the growth of that seed. But the very first soil that Jesus spoke about described a callous heart. He said some of the seed fell by the wayside or the path that people walk on, and it's so hard it is impenetrable. The seed never even gets a chance to get in. Yeah, the seed falls on the soil, but it's quickly picked up, Jesus said, by the birds of the air. This describes the unreceptive or the hardened heart. Pharaoh was like this, wasn't he? It says over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Herod was like this. Here Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the scribes even told him the prophecies, but he was too busy, he was too hardened. He had grown old and become very hardened in his position. Paul the Apostle preached to people around the world. Some received it, but others did not. They had a closed or a callous heart. Paul wrote in Corinthians, the first book, chapter 2, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, he went on to say, for they are foolishness unto him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So you've got to get past this first step where the soil at least will take it in. Otherwise you have an impenetrable heart. And Spurgeon wrote of such people, by saying nothing good can come out of a stony heart. It is as barren as a rock. To be unfeeling is to be unfruitful. Prayer without desire, praise without emotion, preaching without earnestness. What are all these? They're like marble images of life 
They are cold and they are dead. Insensibility is a deadly sign. Frequently its next stage is destruction. Phase number one, step number one, first requirement, receive, be open to the Word of God. Secondly, it's to treasure it up. In the very next phrase, he says, and treasure my commands within you. This is a stronger Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word tzafan, which means to store up. Just like you would collect coins or stamps or something that you love, you treasure it, you store it up, you take it unto yourself. What you receive now becomes valuable to you. It's a stronger term. It's not just, okay, I'm open, but that's precious. That has value. There is a difference between receiving and treasuring. I get all sorts of mail. Some of it I receive. Excuse me, all of it I receive. I have to. But I don't treasure it all. I get bills. I receive every one of them. I respond to every one of them. I don't treasure them up. I don't collect them for future. But there are other things I do treasure. I get cards of encouragement. I have love letters. Before my wife and I were married, when we were just dating and we'd write back and forth when she lived in Hawaii and I lived in Huntington Beach, California. And I'll pull those out every now and then and read those words. I am treasuring those times and those words. When young couples date, they treasure their time with each other. They hang on every word. They look forward to being with each other. They don't tolerate each other. It's not like, ah, we have to go on a date tonight. It's my duty, you know. We're going out and we're going steady, so I've got to do this. There's a treasuring that goes on. It's more than just being open and receiving. There is a treasuring. Uh, Treasure tells a lot about a person. What you treasure tells a lot about you. Didn't that what Jesus said? Where a man's treasure is, there is his heart also. What do you treasure? Find your treasure, that is where your heart is. A woman and her young daughter were having the minister over for a visit, and he came to the door, and she really wanted to make an impression, the mom did, on this uh, man of God. And so he was invited in, and they had tea out in the front room, and so proudly the mom turns to her daughter and says, Honey! Bring me the book that mother so loves. And so her daughter came back with the new Sears catalog (laughs) for mom. Daughter knew. Once words are received by the Christian, then there is to be a treasuring process, a storing up. Where does it say we're to do that? It says within you. That is not on a shelf but you treasure the Word of God within you. God's truth should be kept in the safe custody of your conscience, your memory. In some kind of, I think, organized fashion is always best where you commit certain portions of it to memory so that you can use it at the appropriate time. I think David expressed it best in Psalm 119, Your word I have hidden or stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we commit Scripture to memory. We treasure the times we spend with God, do we not? We look forward to spending time with Him with an open Bible and a sincere heart. And I think that Scripture ought to be viewed just like you're dating somebody. This is God's love letter to me. God, out of love, has revealed Himself, and it's my joy and my treasure 
to store these things up within me. Now, there are people who read God's Word, and there are other people who feed on God's Word. It is their very life, and you can always tell that kind of a person. People like Martin Luther who said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It grabs a hold of me. Or Abraham Lincoln who said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. For all of the scripture, he said, speaks about the Savior that God has given to us. And then there's Walter Scott, the great poet. I love his words. Not only did he have depth as a British poet, but he had a walk with the Lord. When he was dying, it is recorded that he turned to his attendant, his assistant. He said, bring me the book. His attendant said, Sir Scott, you've got thousands of volumes. Which book? Scott said, the book. The Bible, of course, the only book for a dying man. It's because he lived the Bible. It was his life. He treasured up God's word, so at death it was natural that he would request it. Now I think that this transition from receiving truth to treasuring truth is a natural, normal progression for every single Christian. I've seen it so often with people. One of the first things a new believer wants to buy is a Bible. It's a natural thing. They hear it and they go, I want my own Bible. I want to carry it with me. I want to know where things are at. And uh, you know what it's like if you've had a Bible for some time and you lose it or something happens to it. You know, you may not know where every chapter is or every verse, but you know what side of the page it's on because it's in yellow and there's a little green star by it. You're just familiar with it. It's familiar territory. A new Christian will want to receive but then treasure. They'll buy a Bible. They'll start marking in it, writing notes in it. Then they start carrying it like to work and to restaurants. It's a part of their life. And and your friends look at you as being a little bizarre because you didn't do this before. But now you come to work and they go, what's that? Uh, It's a Bible. And they kind of back off like it's going to jump at them or something. (laughs) Why would you bring that? I remember coming to the church I grew up with after I became a believer in Jesus Christ from my heart. And I walked into the foyer of that church with a Bible. And I was stopped by one of the ushers. He said, what are you bringing that thing in here for? It was kind of a reaction to it. But it's normal for someone to want to not only receive, but then treasure it up. It becomes a part of them. The third step is to attend to it. To attend to it. Verse 2. So that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. In other words, you treasure it up to the extent that you're seriously giving it attention, not just underlining things, not just memorizing things, but you're attending to it that you might obey it. That's really the intention here. The word attend to it or the word incline, we think of incline as bending toward, but the original word means to sharpen your ears. Have you ever um, heard or watched a dog listen to an odd sound? Or have you ever tried to make an odd sound to your dog and see their reaction? Their ears kind of cock a certain way and they kind of look at you goofy like, what is that? They're processing the information. I do this all the time with my dog. I'll give it a weird, I'll make up some noise or I'll try to imitate something and he'll just kind of cock his head and move his ears out. I'd like just to watch that. 
It's dog torture, I guess, but I like to do that. So the idea is, I've received God's words, I've treasured God's words, and now as I read, He's speaking to me. So my ear is inclined, it's turned toward, and my ears are sharpened. My heart is applying it. I want now to obey the Scriptures. There really is a relationship between your ears and your heart. In the Bible, the word heart is often a synonym with your mind. It's where you process thoughts in the inward parts of your being. Your ear is simply a vehicle that conveys the information to the mind, to the heart, and you process it, and you think about it, and you start applying it to your own life. So that's the main thrust. I receive it, I treasure it, and now I'm really giving it attention so I might do it. There was a prophet in the Bible who was called by God when he was just a little kid. His name was Samuel. One night, Samuel was sleeping there in the church, in the sanctuary of God. Eli was the priest. He was the mentor. He'd been around the block a few times prophetically. And here, little Samuel's sleeping and Eli is sleeping. And God comes to get his attention. And God says, Samuel, Samuel, that's all he said. Just called his name twice. Little Samuel got up, ran over to Eli's bed and said, What do you want? Eli woke up and said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he went back to sleep. A little later on, God pulled it on him again. Snuck in his room. Said, Samuel, Samuel. He got up. Went over to Eli and said, and he thought, is he playing a joke on me or what? What do you want, Eli? Eli said, I never called you, but I think God's trying to speak to you. Next time you hear this, if you hear Samuel, Samuel, respond to it. Say, speak, Lord, your servant Hears. It's the same word. It means to, I turn my ear, I'm ready to obey. Sure enough, God came in. Samuel, Samuel. Little Samuel hopped out of bed and said, Speak, Lord, your servant is hearing, listening, ready to obey. And then God gave him a commission that he fulfilled by obedience. That's the intention and the idea here. Now, a lot of people receive God's truth. And what I mean by that is they don't resist it. They receive it passively. Okay, I'm open to it. I'll tolerate it. But that's where the process stops. It goes no further than, okay, I'm open to it. It's a very passive reception. Many don't attend to it with their ears or their heart. Many come to church like they would watch television. Turn on the television. It's entertaining. They would never do the things that television does, they say. They just want to relax in front of the screen. Kick back. Put the mind in neutral. Let let them be entertained. Well, a lot of people come to church the same way. They hear the Word. I like the Word. I like the Bible. It had nice stories in it. Good band before the sermon. Every now and then the sermon is okay. So I'll tolerate it. But like a television show, they would say, I'd never do the things that the Bible says. I just receive it and listen to it. G. Campbell Morgan said, I now affirm it is impossible to read this book without being conscious that it makes an appeal to my conscience and my will. Whenever it does that, whenever it captures the conviction, the student must respond by obedience or inevitably the Bible becomes a sealed book. 
I personally believe the reason why many people have lost their love for the Bible is they have failed to recognize the necessity for obedience to its moral claims. Oh, I've met a lot of people. Oh, yeah, the Bible. It's not, I just, it's hard to read. I don't like reading. It's because there's never a heart response. It's like, I passively am open to it. That means that coming to church is one of the most dangerous things you could ever do. It is. Because if you hear the truth and you don't attend to it, your spiritual senses become dulled time and time and time again. Every time you hear but decide, eh, I'm not going to do that, eh, it's not for me, eh, it's for somebody else, nudge them, and you don't apply it, a dullness happens over your own heart. And James called it being deceived. And he wrote that to Christians. He said, don't be deceived, my brethren. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Otherwise, you deceive yourself. So you can have an open mind, in a sense. You can even uh, underline a few scriptures and memorize a few. But unless your heart is ready to apply it, it's futile. The next step, then, is to pray to understand its depth. Uh, First of all, you receive it. Second of all, it becomes valuable, so you treasure it. The third thing you do is you sharpen your ear to its commands. Fourthly, you pray to understand its depth. Notice verse 3. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. Having received it, and now that I see it as valuable, and now that my ears are sharpened to it, I now want to pray to the one who wrote it, the author, God himself, so that I don't misapply it or misinterpret it. I'm always open to him, to him to illuminate his truth to my heart and to apply it to a fresh situation. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says it's possible to read the Bible with a veil over your heart. He said the Jews do this to this day. They're reading the law, they're searching the scriptures, but there is a veil over their heart that keeps them from really understanding and applying the truth. Listen to David, who spoke so often about the Word of God. And he always asked God to help him, give him insight, cried out for understanding. Psalm 119. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. Verse 18. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold or see the wonderful things from your law. Down in verse 33 and 34, Teach me, O God, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. A couple guys were walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem after Jesus had died and risen. They didn't know he had risen. They just thought he had died. And as they're walking along, Jesus walks up next to them incognito and has this little conversation with them. And after Jesus had spent some time teaching them the Bible, and he left, they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the Scriptures to us? I pray for that every time I open this book. Lord, I've opened this book, but would you open my heart to the understanding of it? Give me light that I might see it. And then as Jesus appeared a little bit later on in the same chapter in the upper room with the disciples, it says, and he opened up their eyes or their minds that they might comprehend the scriptures. There's that opening process. Notice, though, how the text is written. If you cry out and if you lift up your voice, 
That sounds like it's an earnest prayer, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a lot of mumbling is going on. It sounds heartfelt. Notice it doesn't say, if you lightly mention in passing, or if you casually inquire about. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. God has promised to bless and reward those who diligently seek Him. It's the diligent seekers, not the casual inquirers, that God has promised to bless and fill with His knowledge and His understanding. I have gone to some prayer meetings that, well, they're boring. Not because prayer is boring, but uh, people in their prayer requests pray as if nothing really is going to happen. It's just my duty to do this. And so it's the same stale phrases that are tossed out, but there's no real earnestness in it. I'm not saying that you have to manufacture it and go, Oh God, and yell at Him. But I'm saying that there ought to be some passion of heart for the understanding of God's truth. Spurgeon once again said, No prayer ever reaches God's heart that does not come from our hearts. Nine out of ten prayers that are prayed, that you listen to, have so little zeal in them, that if they ever obtained a blessing, it would be a miracle of miracles indeed. Now the final step, the fifth step, is that you dig it out. You're open to it, you receive it. Don't stop with that, treasure it up. Don't stop with that, attend to it. Say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Don't stop there. As you read it, ask God to give you personally the meaning, the depth, the interpretation. But then finally, you dig on your own. It says in verse 4, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The word search is a mining term. Uh, Get the picture of a guy standing with his hammer and chisel, tearing rocks apart, uncovering earth to get to the vein that he has found in the side of the mountain or in the dirt. He's mining, he's uncovering, he's diligently working. He is studying to show himself approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. Well, I think we ought to approach the Bible the same way. There's gems to be found in it. But you know what? A lot of the gems in the Scripture are not on the surface. You've got to dig. You've got to take notes. You've got to uncover words. You've got to look at how the words fit together. You have to cross-reference it with other Scriptures. That's where the gems are found. For years, people have come to the United States of America because they said, it's the land of opportunity. I can make a fortune in America. And many people from foreign soil come here and they realize the opportunities. They look around and they say, you mean all it takes is hard work? Well, I can do that. And a lot of them with that bent, with that attitude, have made a fortune. They've applied themselves. They've worked hard. Uh, During the gold rush, people... You know, risked life, limb, houses were sold, they crossed oceans, hot deserts, in search for gold. Seek after, on your own, the truth in the Scripture. It's a mine of truth. Dig it out. In Yellowstone National Park, there's a sign as you enter that says, Don't feed the bears. A guy went in and asked the ranger 
in the center of the park where there was another sign that said, don't feed the bear, he pointed to some tourists feeding the bear and said, well, what's the big deal? They're doing it. It seems harmless. He says, come back here in the wintertime. We have to carry away dead bears every winter. They've gotten so accustomed to being spoon-fed by the tourists, they don't know how to get their own food anymore. We become sometimes like that. It's good to sit and receive the truth as you expose yourself to it in a sermon, in a book, in a tape, but you need to learn how to dig it out on your own. You know, Paul the Apostle commended a church for doing that. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11? He said, those in Berea were more fair-minded than those over in Thessalonica because they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind, but they searched the Scriptures every day to see if these things were so. They made it the pursuit, the passion of their own life. And so we pray, but we study. R.W. Dale said, study without prayer is atheism. Prayer without study is presumption. Dig in. Have an appetite for it. Obtaining wisdom is not a once-a-week hobby. It's a daily passion of a lifetime. Now, it is tough, I have found. It's very difficult to convince a modern generation that they need to take time to slow down, to study, to meditate, to pray. Uh, Because... Our age is the age of the microwave oven. Instant fast food. The microprocessor. Man, I get impatient when my computer waits another half second for a program to come up. Gosh, this thing is so slow. TV has dulled our senses. Technology has ruined our patience level. So to convince people, carve out time out of your day to pursue, to treasure, to dig, and to pray through the Scripture and to make it a part of your life. It's tough. We want a quick way to be happy, not the slow way of being holy. We would like a program, Microsoft Maturity. I plug it in and it works. It doesn't work that way. I found an anonymous article written by an author, and he called it the Diary of a Bible, as if the Bible was writing its own diary. January 15th is the first entry this Bible writes. I've been resting for a week. A few nights after the first of the year, my owner opened me up, but no more. New Year's resolution gone wrong. February 3rd, owner picked me up and rushed off to Sunday school. February 23rd, cleaning day, I've been dusted and put back in my place. April 2nd, busy day. The owner had to present the lesson at the church society meeting. Quickly looked up lots of references. May 5th, in Grandma's lap again, a comfortable place. May 9th, Grandma let a tear fall on John 14, 1 through 3. You know, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. May 10th, Grandma's gone, back in my old place. May 20th, baby born, they wrote his name on one of my pages. July 1st, packed in a suitcase, off for vacation. July 20th, still in suitcase. Almost everything else is taken out. July 25th, home again, quite a journey, though I don't see why I went. August 16th, cleaned again and put in a prominent place. The minister is to be here for dinner. August 20th, owner wrote Grandma's death in my family record. He left his extra pair of glasses between my pages 
December 31st now from August 20th. Owner just found his glasses. Wonder if he will make any resolutions about me for the new year. The prerequisites or the requirements in the passionate pursuit of God, receiving his words, treasuring them up, inclining or sharpening your ear, applying your heart that you might obey it, praying through it, digging it on your own. Now, if you do that, the then clauses follow. Look at verse 5. These are the rewards. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. If you do this, you will understand the fear of the Lord. You'll understand what it means to walk in humility and in love before God. You'll know what it is to take God seriously rather than a once a week kind of a hobby. It says you will find the knowledge of God. I don't think this means that you'll have a lot of facts about God. I think this means that when you do this, you will come to know God intimately. You won't just have intellectual theological knowledge. You'll have a heart that pants after God because through his writings you'll come to know him. Now, how does that work? How does it work that if you really study and apply and open your heart to the Scripture, that you'll have an intimate relationship and a personal relationship with an unseen person? Because your approach to the Bible will be much different than, say, a person in college who takes a course on the Bible as literature. To you now, it's not a good book. It's God's book. It's God's love letters written personally to you. And that's how you read it. That's how you approach it. It makes all the difference in the world. If you pursue theological knowledge, and we always are telling our school of ministry students and pastoral students these things, if you pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on you. Theological knowledge can make you so conceited and so puffed up because you get intoxicated with it. You know answers and other people don't and you just kind of dole them out rather than a real response to the God who wrote them. So the supreme value of reading this book, the Bible, is that you might know its author. You want to know the author, not just the precepts, but the one behind the precepts. It's a big difference, isn't it? At a dinner evening, dinner banquet, one evening, an actor who was at the head table, who was known for his voice and his oratory, was asked to recite something, give a speech, anything. He got up and quoted Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. His voice rang through the halls. At the end of Psalm 23, they gave him a standing ovation, stirring, moving. Then they asked a minister in town, who for some reason had been invited to this thing, if he'd say something. And he quoted the same psalm. This time everybody had tears in their eyes. They were moved to the core. What was the difference? Well, the actor stood up afterwards and put it best himself. He said, I know the psalm. He knows the author. Big difference in how you read this book. Notice the other benefits that are mentioned here as well in verse 7. Uh, he's a shield to those who walk uprightly. In verse 8 and 9, he'll guard the path, he'll preserve the way, and you will understand. That is, you will have the knowledge of the right way. You'll be able to make right choices. 
You've passionately pursued God. You've been receptive. You've inclined your ear. You have a passionate prayer life for His truth. You dig it on your own. And you'll be able to make the right choices as you go through life. And your path will be shielded and guarded. I have found that every error and heresy is directly related to somebody not searching out the truth of God's Word. That's what Jesus said. He said to the Pharisees, who were like, you know, Bible computer, Bible nerds, they were into it all the time. He said, you err not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Well, if you seek and search and are open, you'll have the right path the right way. And your personal life will be enriched beyond measure, like a miner walking away with gems. You'll have such gems of truth. You'll have such stability. You'll be a person who stands firm when everybody seems to falter. You'll have a confidence that's unshakable. Somebody once said a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. You can tell Bibles that are red. Now, don't try to hide yours right now if it's brand new. You've got to buy one sometime, and it's always new. And don't go home either and just and do this, you know. Make it look like, wow, he reads it a lot. But it is true. I have found that a Bible is a precious possession. And usually if it's tattered and well-torn and beat up, it belongs to somebody who's in it an awful lot. The Bible might be coming apart, but that person's life surely is not. The heart of every one of us was created, I think, with a restlessness. An emptiness that can only be satisfied in a pursuit after God. And Jesus said, whoever hungers and thirsts after righteousness, what will happen to them? They'll be filled. They'll be filled. They'll be satisfied. Do you want satisfaction? Fulfillment? It comes with a passionate pursuit after God. Augustine said it best. He said, God, thou hast made us for thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. A big difference between a curious fascination with being a policeman or an astronaut or a spy or a musician and actually being one. And the same with a Christian. As David said, as the deer pants after the brooks or the streams of water, so pants my soul after thee, O God. Is God your passion? Do you receive His words? And do you just stop there or do you treasure them up, really treasure them up? so that your ears are sharpened, your heart is ready to apply. You pray through it, you study it on your own. Or, rather than that, would you say, the Bible's kind of boring, and when I read it, it's a duty, not a pleasure. Could it be that you don't know its author? A young woman went into a bookstore, and she bought a book. Decided she'd give it a chance. She heard about it, so she took it home, and... That night she was sitting in bed and she read a few pages. She got bored with it. She tossed it on her table. It wasn't that interesting to her. She thought, I'll never read this. This is boring. A couple weeks later, she met the author of that book. They became friends. They became good friends. They dated. He asked her to marry him. She started reading that book again, and guess what? Wow! It was so poignant and so interesting. Every sentence had a charm for her heart because now love was the interpreter. And it does make all the difference. When you love the author who wrote it, it's easy to be open. It's easy to treasure. 
those moments spent with God. It's easy to pray through it and apply it because you're so in love with that one. Now, as I say these words, there might be people with heavy hearts who have fallen in their relationship with God. Like the church of Ephesus, they have left their first love. Say, oh, I remember the days I had a passionate walk with God, but no more. Well, be like Ty Cobb and Edison and the guy who flunked his math class, Einstein. Get up again. Pursue him again. That's what Jesus told that church of Ephesus. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Do your first works all over again. You want life, satisfaction, the knowledge of God? Comes with a passionate pursuit after him. Go for it with gusto. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, your precepts, your commands. They are not written from the heart of a legislator, but the heart of a loving father who has written love letters to his kids or of the bridegroom who has written love notes to his bride. And Lord, I pray that they would be received as such and treasured as such and applied as such, prayed over, dug into, that we might receive now upon this earth even before we get to heaven, the treasure of the knowledge of God, the fear of the Lord, a rich and satisfying life. Lord, I pray that we would consider our own hearts, that if the Word of God has become dull to us, perhaps it's because our heart has not been obeying its precepts, its commands. We have not responded by applying it. We want to change that today. Let's stand right before the Lord, all of us, and just continue this prayer. Let's all stand right now and just sort of pledge our hearts afresh to the Lord. Lord, once again, as your people, we stand before you as so often the children of Israel did and making and declaring a covenant with you. And we declare that covenant with you once again that we are your people, the sheep of your hand, of your pasture. You own us. We belong to you. And you have given us love letters. May we receive them as such. Lord, like the revival under King Josiah, may we rejoice in your truth. And would you open our heart to it. In Jesus' name, amen.